It is good to be here with you and to sing along with you and to worship our Savior. Um, Mike is on his sabbatical. This is his first week gone of six weeks that he'll be missing. Um, my name is Brian. I'm the associate pastor here, If for anyone who doesn't know me. And uh, if you are new here, I just, I'm sorry, he's just gone and you're stuck with uh, whoever ends up up here uh, for the next couple of weeks. So it will be uh, an adventure, but hopefully it'll be one that honors the Lord. So if you would, we're in the Gospel of Luke this morning. You can go ahead and turn there, Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. I love talking about the Gospels. I love what they reveal about Jesus and about what he did. And once you get there, go ahead and stand up for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the times of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Father, thank you for this your word and what it tells us about Christ, I pray that we would, as we hear it this morning, uh, God, I pray that it would change our hearts, make us more like Christ, and that we would honor you through that. We love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. I am always fascinated by any passage in the Gospels that includes people trying to kill Jesus. It just seems so amazing that anyone would attempt it at all, and yet it happens multiple times. And of all of the ways to kill the Son of God, throwing Him off a cliff seems to me to be obviously the least effective. Like, clearly God can fly, right? And yet, this is what they do, and I read this passage, and sometimes, sometimes you, can, you can understand exactly what's going on and feel like, oh, I, I, I at least know why they're so upset. But... 
I remember the first time I really looked at this passage, and I remember being mystified by it. I don't understand why do they get so upset. What about what Jesus is saying causes them to react with such anger? And so I was excited to look at that this week, and this is at an interesting place in Luke, even though we're in the fourth chapter of Luke, this is really the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in Luke. At the beginning of Luke, you get, the, you get the birth story of Jesus, and you get some genealogies about Jesus, and you get some about John the Baptist, and you see Jesus tempted in the desert. You guys are probably familiar with that story. But just two verses ago is when Jesus started his public ministry, going around preaching and performing miracles. You can see it in verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So we know that Jesus has already started to go out, that he has this teaching ministry, that a report went out about him, so there's a certain amount of fame and notoriety that is following him around. And then he comes back to his hometown, to the town of Nazareth, where he grew up. I don't know how many of you have ever gone back to some place where you spent a lot of time in your childhood. If you've ever like visited your old elementary school or something and just to see, right, do my teachers recognize me? I don't know. I have the joy of serving in a church where I grew up. I don't know if you know this. I grew up in this church. My whole life I've gone here. And so it's interesting sometimes. I'll get comments from people who've known me for a long time. Be like, I changed your diaper. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate the reminder. Um, I've never been told that like in a counseling session or something. That would be super awkward. But, uh, but, but you reminded of that, right? There are people who have known you for a long time. Some of them might only remember your immaturity. Some of them might be extra impressed, more impressed than they should be, about your growth into a man. But This is what Jesus is dealing with when he's going home. And the passage, really Jesus, it's it's the Old Testament that we're dealing with in this passage. Jesus reads a passage from Isaiah, and then he tells a story about Elijah and Elisha. He reminds them about something that that God did during the time of Elijah and Elisha. And so the the way we're going to outline this is we're going to see two teachings about the Old Testament so that we would understand Jesus' ministry as the Messiah. Two teachings. And the first one is that Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. And this is very obvious. It's the Sabbath day. Jesus already has this custom. He already has this normal thing that he does. The Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue. A lot of people would have been there at the synagogue. And he stood up to read. The Sabbath service during that time, would have looked very similar to our services. They would have two different scripture readings, one from the law and one from the prophets, and they would have prayers and they would have a sermon. And so, again, it was, it was very, very similar. At some point in history, there was, a, there was like a formal thing that they did in terms of the readings. They would, they would have an annual sort of scripture reading, and so you would have been assigned a certain portion when it was your turn, turn to read. But historians aren't really sure if they had started doing that yet at the time that Jesus was teaching, so he may have got to pick his own passage and thought, oh, why don't we fulfill some scripture this morning and point into Isaiah. So we're not really sure if, if it was him that picked it or if it was just divine providence, but either way, this is what he has. And so he stands up and he reads, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. 
They didn't have these nice compact Bibles that we have. It would have been a large scroll, probably would have been papyrus, maybe like vellum, like animal skin or something like that, but probably papyrus, and he would have had to unroll it. And I mean, it's, it's difficult to find Isaiah in your Bible as it is, right? Imagine like, right? you gotta, you got to wind your way all the way over. But he gets through the 61st chapter of Isaiah, and he reads the Spirit of of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you get this first 20, it always, the Bible always has these quick descriptions of things that would have taken a certain amount of time. He rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant. They had a, had a bat boy for the scroll, I guess. And he, he sits down, and that was, just, that was just what you did for Scripture teaching at the time. You stand to read, but you sit to teach, which isn't a bad deal, actually. I wouldn't mind like a lazy boy recliner or something up here. I think that would be, be kind of cool. But he sits, and all the eyes of the synagogue are upon him. And it really is a very similar situation to what we have here. They all have been watching him. And who knows what exactly they were showing up for? Maybe they went to the synagogue every day. Maybe they just heard Jesus was in town and he was going to be teaching, and so they showed up. Maybe the synagogue in Nazareth was also a pokey stop, and so they all just went there to get a Snorlax or something. But they were all watching him, and his words are today. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. While I was reading, while you were listening, these verses, they were fulfilled. Have you ever met someone who claimed to fulfill prophecy? I would be a little bit skeptical if I met someone who's like, oh, you know this 900-year-old prophecy that everyone here recognizes as Scripture? Yeah, that's talking about me. That's me. Sorry. I would be a little bit skeptical. At first, they, they're kind of with it, right? They, they're impressed with his words, but then they start to get skeptical. But it's, it's really this amazing statement. And this is really largely the point of the Gospels is to show that Jesus is, the term we use now is Messiah, right? That He really is the one that these prophecies in the Old Testament were referencing. He is the one that they were pointing to. And the very first thing Jesus does in His public ministry in Luke is reference that fact. That, you know, the entire Old Testament, maybe specifically this passage, but the entire thing, it was pointing to me. I am the fulfillment of that. Isaiah, when, when they reference liberty to captives, there were actual slaves at that point in the, nation, uh, in the nation of Israel's history. Babylon had invaded. There were many people in exile. And so the, the, maybe the physical fulfillment of that would be the freeing of, slave, uh, of the slaves, of the exiles in Babylon. But I think Jesus' point is really clear here that there's a, that there's a spiritual component to this as well. 
that he has the Holy Spirit, that God himself has anointed Jesus to do these things, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. A lot of commentaries will point to this language and say how it's similar to Leviticus 25 and the year of Jubilee. I don't know if you're familiar with the year of Jubilee, but every 50 years in Israel, every 50 years, you would have this special year, the year of Jubilee, and all land was returned to its original owners, all slaves were freed, all debts were forgiven, and it was this this really kind of interesting time. And so this is, this is similar to that. Truthfully, for me, it makes me think of the Sermon on the Mount. If you just want to look at Matthew 5, right? You know these verses, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And you see how that's true at first. Like, why would, why would God, why would the meek be blessed? Why would those who mourn be blessed? Why are those who are poor in spirit be blessed? Because Jesus has been sent for those people to proclaim liberty to them, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor for them. And so Jesus Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And there are some of you who might feel like, man, I don't, I don't feel especially captive. I don't feel oppressed. I don't feel a need for God's favor. My life is already pretty good. And yet, for others, this is a perfect description of your life. You feel the weight of your sin or your circumstances. They're heavy on top of you, and you know that you need someone, you need a Savior to free you from that. And that is what Jesus is here to proclaim. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And you can be set free from captivity to sin. You can be given a new heart that loves God and is a slave now to something else, a slave to righteousness. You can also receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. And the whole rest of the New Testament is so clear on this, that we are saved not by being good people, not by working really hard or being kind to others or by going to church or by doing any number of these things, but it's through faith in Christ that we're saved. And that faith is useful, that faith achieves our salvation because Jesus is this Savior. Because when He died on the cross, He actually purchased our liberty for everyone who believes in Him. And that is the essence of the gospel. And so it is incredibly helpful, I think, to see right at the beginning of His ministry to know that Jesus is the focus of our faith for the purpose of salvation, for the purpose of being set free from sin. So the first teaching from the Old Testament, Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. But to be honest, I think the second portion of Old Testament teaching 
is kind of the main point of this passage. It's the climax of it. Second teaching is that, I mean, Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in Jesus, Old Testament prophets demonstrated that God extends grace to whomever He desires. These prophets showed that sometimes God just gives grace to someone that you wouldn't expect. At first, they heard him say that he had fulfilled these prophecies, he had fulfilled this scripture, and they all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. Only, only Jesus could not only describe himself as a fulfillment of prophecy, but also have people hear that and think, what a gracious man. This guy is just so nice. I, somehow he just pulls that up. But they start to get skeptical. Isn't this Joseph's son? Don't we know him? I remember when he was small. I saw him grow up. He went to high school with my son. They took algebra together. Jesus toilet papered my house one time. This man can't possibly be the fulfillment of Scripture. And they have this skepticism. And so Jesus starts to respond to this. Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, position, heal yourself. We've heard you did a Capernaum do here in your hometown. Kind of a strange thing that Jesus thinks that they would say to him. I feel like. But the idea is, right, as a physician, right, you're saying you can help other people. Let's see you help yourself. Like, let's, let's see it. Jesus, you did some stuff at Capernaum. We know that you were healing. We know that you were teaching. We've heard about you. Let's see it, Jesus. Show us the money. We are interested in what you have, but we're going to need to see you do some of it. So truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And then he goes into this Old Testament account about Elijah and Elisha. And it's so interesting because this isn't some new teaching from Jesus. I know you heard, but I say, or something like that, or just totally turning. This is just Scripture. He's just saying, remember that time when the thing happened in your Scripture that you totally already know about? And they get so mad at the end of it. They're full of anger. I don't know when's the last time you've been really mad. It was probably on the freeway, let's be honest. But sometimes you get angry with people. But have you ever just flown into some kind of murderous rage? If you have, there's someone to pray with you after the service. <laughs> right up front. But it seems so strange to me that that, that would happen. I, imagine that I am here preaching. And I say something that's upsetting. It's one thing, and maybe you've, you've probably heard a sermon where someone said something where you thought, well, I don't agree with that. And you probably, I don't know, you just stopped thinking about it. Hopefully you did. Maybe you sat and like stewed in your seat for a while. But imagine it is so inflammatory that everyone starts talking and all of a sudden like Marty and Brian Bush rush the stage. One of them grabs a podium, the other Alex's guitar, and they're just wailing on me because that is the only possible reaction that we can have. Not just anger, not just disappointment. I can't forget about this. I have got to kill you, and I've got to do it quickly. That is some serious anger. 
This wasn't any kind of lawful thing. It wasn't capital punishment. Only the Roman government was allowed to execute people. This was a mob. They heard something. They were riled up. And again, it takes so long. They rose up. They drove him out of the town. They brought him to the brow of the hill so that they could throw him down. And then he just passes through their midst. He seems to miraculously just escape. It was not his time to die. But what is it about what he said that angered them so much? Why be so mad? And it feels like it's kind of in there, but because you kind of read it and you're like, well, what, what does he mean? What happened there? And these are two Old Testament stories. Maybe you're familiar with these uh, during the time of Elijah and Elisha. I love Elijah and Elisha, uh, maybe kind of an extra amount, because at one point, a few years ago, I very specifically thought to myself uh, that I am I'm more deficient on my Old Testament knowledge than I should be. And I teach in the anchored class every Sunday, the college career group. And, and I thought, I'm going to teach through the life of Elijah and Elisha. I felt like I kind of knew a lot about Moses, and I kind of knew a lot about Abraham, and maybe some other Old Testament guys. But these guys, these were some major guys, and I felt like I was lacking. Like, what, what happened in their life? And so I actually have got to preach through both of these two things. And the one with Elijah is one of my favorite passages. Because it turns out Ahab is king of Israel during the time of Elijah's ministry as a prophet. And Ahab was just the worst king ever. And that's not an exaggeration. The Bible literally tells us that he was the worst king. No one was ever as evil as Ahab of all the kings of Israel. And his wife, Jezebel, was just as bad, and you know that because you have never considered naming your daughter Jezebel, ever. Um, that is just off the table now for the rest of time. Jezebel and Judas, I think. And so Ahab introduced them to Baal worship, introduced the nation of Israel to Baal worship. Child sacrifice, terrible stuff, Baal worship. And Elijah comes in, he's a prophet of the Lord, he predicts this drought that's also going to cause a famine. And it goes on for three and a half years. And God is going to protect Elijah. And so at first he leads him down by this stream where birds are bringing him food, and then later the stream dries up and he says, go to Zarephath, go to this place, I have this widow who's going to take care of you, which would have been totally bizarre. Because widows were generally very poor during that time. You were, you, were, you were pretty much destitute if you were a widow. So how is this woman going to take care of me? And Elijah goes there and he finds this widow who's on the verge of death. She's on the verge of starvation. She thinks she's going to die essentially that day. And through this miracle, she is fed. And God promises that for as long as the drought continues, as long as the famine persists, I'm going to continue to provide for you, to provide for your food. Later, her son dies, and Elijah brings him back from the dead by the power of the Spirit. And at the end of this whole thing, she believes. She believes in God. Naaman is a little bit different. He is the commander of the armies of Syria. And it's, it, maybe they're both bizarre in their own way, but this is a different kind of bizarre because he actually leads this raid against Israel 
And he takes back this young Israelite girl back to serve in his household. She is uh, one of the servants for his wife. But Naaman has leprosy. He's a leper. And this little girl who's serving in his house tells his, Naaman's wife, if only Naaman could meet Elisha, this prophet of Israel, he'd totally be able to heal him. And so Naaman's wife tells Naaman, and Naaman tells the king, and the king sends like this big gift over the king of Israel and says, heal Naaman, please. And the king kind of freaks out. He's like, I don't know how to heal Naaman. But Elisha gets word of it and says, send Naaman to me. And so they go on down to Elisha, and they have this completely bizarre exchange where Elisha won't come out of his house and talk to Naaman, but like sends a servant, and Naaman's kind of insulted, and Elisha says, just go wash in the Jordan River seven times, and you'll be healed. Except the Jordan was like, way over there. And Naaman's kind of indignant, like, we have way better rivers in the Jordan where I'm from. River pride was apparently a thing in the Old Testament. I don't know. But I have better rivers than that. And one of Naaman's sermons is like, dude, maybe you should listen to him. Like, he's kind of the prophet. Just just go wash seven times. So he goes all the way over to the Jordan and washes seven times and is healed. And those are the stories. And it turns out you read a little bit farther, it looks like Naaman became a believer too. And these are the stories, the power of God, the graciousness of God. There were these people who had these huge problems. And God orchestrated these events to not only help them, but to save them. What a story, right? Except now you've got to die for reminding us of that. Why? Why is this so upsetting? It seems, when we hear it, like this great thing. This is a wonderful story. It's perhaps tempting to think that the reason it was setting is because God's grace was so, so limited. There were many people starving to death. There were many widows. There were many lepers. And God only chose to help these two individuals. But I don't think that's quite the answer. And in fact, I think the answer is in the text. If you saw it. Many people, great famine came over the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. There were many lepers at the time, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. They were Gentiles. They were not Jews. And that's what was upsetting. Is that this great aha moment for you? Like, oh yes, now I get why they wanted to kill Jesus. It's not the most satisfying explanation for me. I still feel like, yeah, okay, they were Gentiles, and, but that was it for them. They just, now you got to die for reminding us of that. What a strange thing. Ultimately, they were upset that Jesus was reminding them that God's grace passed over the nation of Israel, and instead went to someone outside of the people of God. 
They were mad about that. If God's grace was going to go to anyone, it would go to someone in Israel, someone who was part of God's people. Not these other people, not these outsiders. I was really struck by this this week and spent, I, I probably spent more time on this section than on anything else trying to figure out what would be the cultural equivalent of this. I really tried to figure out what could I say that really would get you guys as mad as possible. And it's a difficult thing because we don't have many mob executions, at least in Orange County. But this was, this was a tough time for the nation of Israel. There was a famine and a drought. The Syrians were awfully strong. This is the leader of their armies. And so I was imagining, I, I, I was thinking about this year, 2016, and maybe even some of the end of 2015. We are living in interesting times, aren't we? It seems like bad things happen all the time. 2016 and the end of 15 has been an amazing time for heartache and tragedy. It seems like almost every week there is something new, and I was just imagining, imagine us having a conversation many years from now, remembering 2016, remembering sort of this time in our lives, and everything wrong that had happened. Do you remember the end of 2015 and 16? The entire world seemed upside down. Do you remember all of the terrorist attacks? Do you remember San Bernardino and Orlando and Dallas and Nice and Brussels and Paris? Do you remember how St. Paul and Baton Rouge happened one day apart, one after another? Do you remember, man, it seemed like at that time, the, the morality of our culture seemed to finally completely separate itself from any kind of biblical morality. And the church, man, we couldn't figure out which sort of immoral things we thought should be illegal and which ones shouldn't. And the debates, goodness, the debates about gender, about guns, about abortion, about the peacefulness of Islam. Do you remember the presidential election cycle of 2016? Do you remember those candidates? Who did you vote for? Actually, don't tell me. I'll be disappointed with you no matter what you say. <laughs> it was, what a year it was. So many things that were tragic. And imagine if I told you that in the middle of all that, while that was happening, that God, of all the people he could have helped, of all the people that he could have reached out toward, God chose to miraculously give financial stability to a terrorist and to miraculously heal a racist cop. Would you react to that news? What would you think in your mind? That's the closest I could get to this passage. And we know, we know that these people reacted the wrong way. 
It's a given, right? They tried to kill the Son of God. Because they reacted to that with anger, with rage. They were upset. And I think what we are supposed to learn from that is if we hear, if you hear that God has extended His grace to help someone, and you know, with both of those Old Testament passages, they seem to have become believers, but it's really surprisingly vague. Sometimes we just don't know. But if you, if you were to find out that God showed physical help to someone, and if you feel anything other than joy that God would extend His grace to a sinner, happiness that God cares not only about our spiritual well-being, but often also for our, spiritual, for our physical well-being, if you feel anything other than gladness that it is God's prerogative to show grace to whomever He pleases, if you feel anything other than that, I think this passage is telling you to repent. That's wrong. It's wrong. And why is it that we are tempted to feel that way? Why is it that these people had to become so angry over that? What is it inside of a person that causes them to be upset that God would show graciousness to someone? These are happy stories. I think the only answer to that is when you think that you deserve God's grace more than your neighbor. You think that there is something about you that makes you more attractive to the Lord. That, that there is, even if it's just a small thing, something about you that compelled God to bring you into His family. Instead of realizing that your sin is just as terrible to God as your neighbor's. That you are just as in need of a Savior as literally every other person in the world that you desperately need the grace of God, that you would be lost if it weren't for God reaching out and changing your heart. It is a wonderful thing that God extends grace to whomever He desires. This this woman at Zarephath, she was a widow, and you kind of think like, oh, she's like, I don't know, a nice old lady, I guess. But this is still someone who is worshiping a false god who God first helped her physically and then saved her spiritually. Naaman, though, was the leader of the army that was attacking Israel. He invaded and kidnapped this young girl and brought her back. These are terrible things, and yet we read that in the Old Testament, and we think, oh, the grace of God, how wonderful. And yet our own neighbors in this world who are doing terrible things and who are oppressing the people of God, we have no love for them. Just two chapters later in Luke, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus has this wonderful message about loving your enemies. And I think that is the perfect complement to this passage because it is so easy to look down on those who are doing wrong. Now, there's, there's no evil injustice. There is no evil when... 
when those who commit crimes are punished on earth, and there's no evil when God punishes sin. That is true. But we all deserved that punishment. And you start doing, quite frankly, stupid stuff, crazy stuff, stuff like trying to throw God off a cliff when you forget about your own sinfulness, when you forget how much you need a Savior, and when you forget that what God wants for you to do is to love your enemies and to show them how God loves them and to pray that God would provide for them and to help them and to save them and to ask that God would even use you in order to do that. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that you deserve God's grace more than your neighbor's. You needed a Savior. You needed Jesus Christ to proclaim liberty to your captive soul. You were oppressed by your own sin. You needed the year of the Lord's favor. And by the grace of God, you have it. For everyone who has faith in Christ, you have the Lord's favor. Pray that He would be gracious to others as well. Be thankful that God pours out His grace on whomever He desires. Love your enemies. And glorify God because of that. This is, as with all things, impossible. Literally impossible. Maybe this is more impossible on the surface. You hear this and think, how could I, how could I possibly? And it's the Holy Spirit's work. So not only pray for others, but pray for yourself that God would change your heart and empower you by His Spirit, enable you to show that kind of love. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word what it tells us about Christ. Uh, It is so easy to think that we are better than others, that we are more deserving of your grace, when in reality, we all need a Savior. We all need your gracious, loving kindness to be poured out on us. And we thank you that we know that we can have salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, And I pray that we would be bold through love for our neighbors and even our enemies, God, that we would be bold to proclaim to others how they can have grace through faith in Jesus Christ as well. Thank you that you you choose anyone, Father, that you pour out your grace on anyone. And I pray that we would always be thankful for that. We love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.